Don't believe a word of that. <laughs> okay, I want to speak for a few minutes tonight about a man called George Muller, who was born in 1805 and died in 1898. I think everyone here has probably heard of the, uh, the Christian Brethren. The Christian Brethren went through very troubled times and divided into the Open Brethren and the Exclusive Brethren. The Exclusive Brethren were headed, headed up by a man uh, called J.N. Darby. It was George Muller who kept the Brethren together. And really, he was the father of the Open Brethren. And what a lot of people don't realize is that George Muller was a Christian Brethren. The guy was brought up with the Christian Brethren. I'm not ashamed of that. I thank God for the start they gave me in my Christian life. And I was told as a young boy, he's one of ours. <laughs> and uh, whenever I heard George Muller mention my chest expanded, he's one of ours. <laughs> Christian brethren. My maternal great-grandfather lived in Bowering Furnace. He was a caulker. You read of caulkers in scripture. Uh, caulkers are those who seal boats. The modern word is riveter. And he worked on the Barrow shipyards. He was married. He had five children. One day his wife said to him, Mark, I've got news for you. I'm expecting. What they didn't realize is she was expecting twins. And when the time came for her to give birth to these twins, one of them died. And so did she. And so my maternal great-grandfather now had five children plus a brand new baby. It so happens at that time he was very unwell and therefore he was laid off. Uh, no kind of sick pay in those days, you just had to make do. So technically speaking, he was unemployed, he was in bed and he had six children. What could he do? He sent the oldest, my grandfather from Bowering Furnace to Blackpool uh, to work on a farm. He sent the second oldest to, to Blackburn to, to work in service. She was just 14 years of age. He farmed off Two of them to uh, different family and friends in Byron Furnace, but he still had two girls. What can I do with them? Out of desperation, he wrote a letter to the Muller Holmes in Bristol and said, this is my position. Could you please, please help me? And very kindly, the Muller Holmes in Bristol said, yes, we'll look after your daughters until they are of age. And so our family has a very close connection with the mother homes. And uh, some 15, 16 years ago, I went with my mother down to Bristol to the George Muller Foundation where they opened up all the archives. And uh, I have in my possession here all the correspondence that was written 100 years ago with my great-grandfather begging them to look after his two daughters. And uh, fascinating things to read. And then the letter that was given to my grandfather when they actually left the mother homes. Uh, and what is deeply moving, I remember standing there with my mother, both of us, weeping when we read the end of the letter. It said, as these two girls left the home, they left as believers in the Lord Jesus. And so George Muller was not only one of our boys, but in terms of a family, we are deeply indebted to George Muller and the mother homes. Just about every religious encyclopedia has the name George Muller. He's the man associated with the founding of five orphanages in, in Bristol. These days, the orphanages are not used as orphanages, and perhaps you have seen them if you've ever watched Casualty on television. Then Casualty was, faced, uh, was filmed in, in one of the orphanages there on Ashley Downs in, in Bristol. 
He never asked for a penny throughout his entire life. But this is the summary of what he did during his 93 years. £1.5 million passed through his hands. £500,000 was given to Ski. I'll explain that later. He personally supported 189 missionaries. Over 10,000 orphanages, orphans passed through his orphanages. He distributed 4 million tracts and thousands of Bibles. He founded 100 schools with 9,000 pupils. He visited 42 countries in the world, traveling over 200,000 miles, preaching to 3 million hearers. He outlived both of his wives and his daughter. He said at the end of his life, he read through the Bible on a hundred occasions. He wrote down all the prayers that he prayed. He said he asked God for over 30,000 things. And most of those requests were answered. Not all of them, but most of them. And he personally wrote 60 tracts. Wow. I was speaking to some Christians a short while ago, and they said, what's your next project? I said, I'm going to speak on George Muller. And they said, who's he? Who's he? Wow, well, he's an incredible man, uh, and one that we're deeply proud of. I just want to kind of walk through his life tonight, showing you some important things about him, and then asking some important questions, saying, well, what's the relevance of this for us in, in the 21st century? He was a 19th century man. He was a giant spiritually, but also a giant physically. And uh, I have some pictures here. I nearly brought a, a sort of picture board of all things connected with him. He was a big, big, tall man. He was born in September 1805 in a place called Kroppenstadt in Prussia. He was born during the Napoleonic Wars. And his parents were Lutherans, but they weren't believers. And some folks struggle with that. You know, you can be an Anglican, but an unbeliever. You can be a Baptist and an unbeliever. This man was a Lutheran and proud of his family background, but he was an unbeliever. When he was incredibly young, his mother died. His mother was four years older than his father, and so his father brought him up, and he was an austere man. His father was a trumpeter in the army, but realized it was all blow and no go. He was going nowhere with that kind of uh, occupation, and so... He joined the tax office, <laughs> and uh, he spent his life going around demanding people's taxes. George Muller saw this as a wonderful godsend, because George Muller was light-fingered. And so here's his father bringing home bags of money every night to be deposited in the bank the following morning, and so George, on a regular basis, began to help himself to this regular supply of money. He said, by the time I was 13... I was a drinker, a gambler, and my eyes were being opened to women, and I soon became a womanizer. His father sent him to a cathedral school in a place called Harvardstadt, and what is quite irritating about George Muller is that we would look at him today and say he was a bit of a waster, you know, drinking, gambling, going around with the wrong kind of women, but he was bright. As a teenager, he could speak. French, German, English. After he got converted, he taught himself Spanish, Greek, Hebrew, Yiddish, and then began to dabble in the Chaldean tongue. So he was a bright young man, but uh, knew how to waste time. 
He was a bit of a smart cookie when it came to stopping in hotels. These days, you cannot stop in a hotel without giving your credit card. In those days, <coughs> you paid when you left the hotel. So he was a smart enough man to go into a hotel, stop a couple of nights, and the morning he should have been signing off and paying, he slipped out of the window. And so he had a reputation among the hotel managers. There's a young man going around this place who gets everything from us but pays for nothing. Eventually, he was caught and he was imprisoned. And his father, to teach him a lesson, left him in prison for three weeks over Christmas and New Year. Happy Christmas, son. <laughs> May you learn a few lessons. And uh, when the New Year arrived, his father then paid his debts, uh, and George Miller came out of prison. When his mother died, his father had to go wandering around the taverns and the inns of his town looking for his son. He found him blind drunk and dragged George Muller to his mother's funeral. That's the kind of man that he was. What kind of profession would a young man like that really be suited to? His father had a bright idea. A Lutheran minister. <laughs> you can see the connection. <laughs> And so he sent him off to train to be a Lutheran minister. And he went to the University of Halle in 1825. And George Muller tells us in his writings, there were 1,260 students at the university, but 900 of them there were studying divinity. And I was one of them. Said Muller, how many do you think out of 900 knew the Lord? He said, just nine. Just nine people knew the Lord. While he was at university, he thought it would be great to get some of his friends coming with him on a grand European tour. He worked it out, 43 days to do Europe. He said to his friends, if you trust me with the arrangements, I'll work out the cost, and then we can have a great holiday together. What he didn't tell them was, it was like some of these Christian holidays, you know, the speaker goes free, but you pay for the speaker. <laughs> they didn't realize they were subsidizing his 43-day holiday. So he basically went for nothing while all these people would pay for him to have a wonderful time going around Europe. One of the nine students who was studying divinity said to George Muller, would you like to come to a Bible study? You would have thought that was quite basic for someone studying these things. It was revolutionary. So he said, I went along to my first Bible study. He said it was quite interesting. A hymn was sung, a prayer was offered, and then a sermon was read about a verse in the Bible. And then an illiterate man, not as clever as myself, said George Muller, he then prayed not from a book, but from his heart. By the way, that illiterate man later went on to the mission field uh, and served as a missionary in Africa with the LMS. As he came home from that meeting, he couldn't get over the fact that this simple man had a relationship with God. He wrote, It pleased God to teach me something of the meaning of that precious truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I understood something of the reason why the Lord Jesus died on the cross, and suffered such agonies in the garden of Gethsemane, even that thus, bearing the punishment due to us, we might not bury it ourselves. And therefore, 
apprehending in some new measure the love of Jesus for my soul, I was constrained to love him in return. What all the exhortations and precepts of my father and others could not bring about, even to renounce a life of sin and profligacy, I was enabled to do, constrained by the love of Jesus. The individual who desires to have his sins forgiven must seek it through the blood of Jesus. It took six weeks from going to that Bible study prayer meeting to actually confess in faith in Christ. But you know that expression, the expulsive power of a new affection. You know, you spend years trying to get your teenage son to wash. And then suddenly he starts washing because he has this power, which is a girlfriend who's arrived on the scene. That is true also of the Christian life. You can tell people to do this and do that, but it doesn't work. Because you can't save yourself. But suddenly when the love of Jesus enters your soul, you have that expulsive power of a new affection. That is exactly what happened to George Muller. And he fell in love with the Lord Jesus. How about this? He went home from university and said to his father, I've become a Christian and, and I now want to be a minister, minister. Preferably reaching out to people in other countries. His father went berserk. Can you understand that? You send your son to train to be a minister. <laughs> he gets converted. He wants to reach out to other people. And the one who supplies all the money and the support actually loses the plot. Said his father, Johan, if that's what you want to do, you're not going to get any money from me. Here's a man who's a thief by nature and a liar by nature. He now suddenly finds himself born again without any money. What a temptation. In the providence of God, three Americans came to the University of Halle and they couldn't speak German. How could they communicate what they wanted to say? A man called Professor Follock said, I know just a student who's fluent in English and German. I'll get him in. And so George Muller was asked to be the interpreter for these Americans. He said, yes, I'll do it. He said, by the time they went back to America, I had received more money for my translation work as an interpreter with these three Americans than I would receive from my father. He was absolutely thrilled. By the way, while he was studying at Halle, one of the young men who was studying with him, you may have heard of him, a man called Charles Hutch. Charles Hutch became a leading theologian over in the States. He actually married Benjamin Franklin's uh, great-granddaughter. But, but, but Hutch was, was a great thinker. And if you ever read Dr. Lloyd-Jones or listen to him on the Internet, then on a regular basis he, he refers to Charles Hutch. Right away, God birthed something in him about reaching Jewish people. George Muller wanted to reach out to Jews. He wanted to become a Jewish missionary. And uh, how do you know if God is going to call you to that kind of work? Well, people have interesting ways of discerning the will of God. He was a new Christian, untaught by anybody. He thought, I know the way to find out whether I should be reaching out to Jews or not. Buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> and if I win, I take it as a sign that God wants me to reach out to the Jews. And if I don't, that's it. <laughs> He won. 
please do not use this lecture <laughs> to justify your gambling habit. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Anyway, he, he, he realized later on it was the wrong kind of thing to do. But amazingly, he took this as a green light that he should be a missionary to reach out to Jewish people. He, he made several applications to different societies, and uh, the Society for the Portion of Christianity among the Jews based in London said, come over, we'd love to, to work with you. But the trouble is he hadn't done his national service. He needed to do his national service before he could leave the country and go and take up a job. But he didn't want to do his national service. He thought, he's going to knock me out of Christian work. The smart cookie submitted himself for national service when he had a bad bout of TB. <laughs> so he turned up for this medical inspection and the doctor examined him and said, you're not fit for the army. Therefore, I, I'm going to write a paper to say that you're not fit to be a soldier. As he was putting his shirt back on, this doctor, who he had never seen before and never saw from that day onwards, said to him, Sir, may I draw to your attention God's work among the Jews as found in Romans chapter 11. Where did that come from? He just took that as a word from the Lord. And sometimes, sometimes God uses incredible vehicles to speak his word. And if God can speak through Balaam's ass, <laughs> there's hope for your minister. <laughs> he did struggle with ill health throughout his, his entire life. Uh, and to be honest, he did keep breaking down health-wise. And what better place to go and recoup and regain your strength than to go to Western Supermare. <laughs> Western Supermare, Portishead, that's where he went to take the waters. He arrived in London on the 19th of March, 1829, and he lived in Hackney. And when he arrived, All Souls Langham Place was just five years old. And Regent's Park had only just been laid out by John Nash. He threw himself into reaching out to Jewish people in London and surprise, surprise, his health broke down. Where did he go to? Well, he hadn't discovered Western Supermara at that stage in his life. He went down to Tynmouth. Now, let me take you off at a tangent here, but I trust you'll find this quite interesting. When he was in Tynmouth, he came across a wiry Scotsman called Henry Craig. Who was Henry Craig? Well, he was a tutor to the children of a man called Anthony Norris Groves. Anthony Norris Groves was a dentist from Exeter. And uh, he found exercise to, to go into the ministry. He was a believer, a very simple believer, a very gracious man. But he found exercise to go into the ministry. And so he started to train for the Anglican ministry. And as he began to train for the Anglican ministry, and, and I'm only telling you history. I mean, I'm not saying this is my opinion. Please don't pick on me for this. As he began to study the scriptures and see what was going on within Anglicanism, he said to himself, this is not the church. This is a human institution. This is not the kind of thing I read of in the Word of God. And so he pulled out from ordination with the Anglican church. <coughs> and uh, therefore he was never ordained. And then he began to look at different sort of people who had an interest in mission. 
But he said, so much money is going into keeping the establishment going that when it comes to frontline mission, people aren't doing it. And so, of his own volition, he felt he should go out to be a missionary to Baghdad. Now, we all talk about William Carey being the father of modern-day mission. That really isn't true. Anthony Norris Groves, this dentist, and his wife, Primari, were the pioneers of modern-day mission. They got together a group of people who they felt would best suit being missionaries in Baghdad. One of the people they took with them was a man called Francis Newman. Francis Newman had a brother that you know as Cardinal Newman, John Henry Newman. Francis Newman, Cardinal Newman's brother, was involved in the Christian Brethren. But sadly, he he lost his faith and in the end turned his back on all that he said he believed in in those early days. While Henry Craig was looking after Anthony Norris Grove's children, things were fine. But when Anthony Norris Grove said, I'm going to Baghdad, suddenly Henry Craig had no job. I've got no children to look after. So he left Exeter and he went to Timnath to find a new opportunity. So here's this Scotsman looking for a new opening. He finds it working for a man called John Singh, a well-heeled man, looking after his children and tutoring them. And while he's just in Timnath, he suddenly butts into George Muller, who's come down to recuperate in order that he may go back to London and carry on working among the Jews. <coughs> the relationship with Henry Craig changed his life. Now what is interesting is this, just before Anthony Norris Groves set off for Baghdad with this party of people, all self-supporting, he left his sister behind, Mary. George Mother saw her, fell head over heels in love with her, and 54 days later married her. <laughs> what would you say if your daughter came home and said, I found the man I should marry, and in 54 days I'm married? So he marries Mary, and, and she was the love of his life. He writes this, I became a believer in the Lord Jesus in the beginning of November 1825. For the first four years afterwards, it was for a good part in great weakness. But in July 1829, it came with me to an entire and full surrender. I gave myself fully to the Lord. Everything, honor, pleasure, money, my physical powers, my mental powers, all was laid down at the feet of Jesus. I became a great lover of the Word of God. I found my all in all in God. As he was there in Timnath, forming this big bond with, with Henry Craig and, and having married Mary, he felt maybe his work in London wasn't for him, that perhaps he should stay here. And when the local church, Ebenezer Chapel, said, would you be our pastor, he jumped in it. The salary? £55 a year. It was very, very poor. But anyway, he started. He started preaching. One of his first sermons was on the value of infant baptism. Just so happens there were three ladies in the congregation who thought he spoke rubbish. And said, Mr. Muller, we don't want to be rude to you, but you have no clue what you were talking about this morning. You will not find infant baptism in the Bible. It's, it's baptism of immersion for believers. He had a blazing row with them. He went home, he read the scriptures, he saw they were right. So he came back and apologized to these three women and said to Henry Craig, would you please baptize me? 
so he was baptized by immersion. His brother-in-law, Anthony Norris Groves, who'd gone out to Baghdad as a missionary, said, I'm just going to rely on the Lord to support me. No church, no society, I rely on the Lord. That deeply impressed George Muller. He said, if he can do that in Baghdad, why can't I do it in Timnath? And so he said to the church treasurer, I, I don't want a salary. Let's have an agreement. Whatever comes in the box, I'll have. If there's nothing there, I'll have it. He said the church treasurer was terrible. Sometimes he did not open the box for three weeks. <laughs> so here's a man who, who suddenly changes his views on baptism. He changes his views on, on how he should be supported. And then, sadly, the wife of Henry Craig died. She was a young lady. And Henry Craig said to George Muller, this is no place for me. I, I have to leave here. I'm going to Bristol to try and find some more work. But you know, would you come with me? How many of us would move our house to go and be with a friend? And so George Muller said, if you're going to Bristol, Henry, I'm coming with you. Where do we worship? They looked at the various chapels in Bristol and were not too happy. A further new chapel called Bethesda was, was there, but it was empty because it had been ripped in half by a church split. So church splits aren't new. They were going on in those days. So here's this really new building, but it's empty. They said, let's trust God to do something. And so they began to rent this. On their first Sunday in 1832, there was George Muller, Mary Muller, Henry Craig, and three women, six of them. They agreed, you take the morning, I'll take the evening. <laughs> Next week, we'll swap it around, I'll take the evening, you still the Anyway, that's how they worked. Oh, by the way, we'll let people know in the area that every Monday evening there's a pastoral surgery. And if anybody wants to talk about anything spiritual, just come along and one of us will be here to talk to you. After 12 months, they had led 65 people to the Lord. On top of that, many backsliders had been restored and slowly the church began to grow. When he was down at Tynmouth, he also changed his views on two other things as well. He was more convinced of, of election and predestination than he'd ever been before and, and, and the Christian brethren were not strongly Calvinistic, kind of more in the centre than sort of being strongly Arminian. But if you had to tip him anywhere, he tipped towards election, predestination. And also he became quite clear about his views on the second coming. During this time, there was lots of discussion in this country about the return of the Lord Jesus. Conferences were held at a place called Palace Court, just outside Dublin, where anybody who was anybody went to those big, big conferences. George Muller came to the conclusion that the church will go through the tribulation. And just for your historical interest, I would say over 90% of the early brethren did not believe in the rapture as some people understand today. They believed that the church would go through the tribulation. And he became strong on those kind of things when he felt he had to be strong. When he was in Bristol, a severe cholera epidemic broke out. 
and it wiped out many adults, leaving lots of young people around, boys and girls. He felt deeply exercised, especially since he and his wife had just had their firstborn child, a girl called Lydia. He was incredibly meticulous, by the way. He, he was a great administrator, and every penny that came in he used to write down. He said, the first year living by faith, I had £100. The second year, £200. The third year, £267, 15 shillings, and 18 and a half pence. Another child was born whom he called Elijah. No pressure to live up to that name. But sadly, Elijah died. Elijah died the same week that his father-in-law died. You think of how trying it is today to bury two people of your close family and to pay for their funerals. And here's a man suddenly facing a crisis. How can I bury these two? And the strain it is, his health broke down. And again, he had to sort of take three months off to try and get himself back together again. In 1837, Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist, which brought to the nation's attention the plight of young children. The year before that, George Muller was reading the scriptures, and he came across this <coughs> verse in the Psalms, Open your mouth, and I will fill it. And he took that as a word from the Lord, saying, God has a heart for these young people in Bristol, and here's me with my wife and my daughter, and all these children are our orphans. Who's going to reach out to me? And so he said in Bethesda, he stood up one Sunday morning and said in Bethesda, I believe God has given me a desire to reach out to the orphans of Bristol. If any of you want to stand with me, that's fine. But if not, don't feel guilty. Suddenly, things started to come towards George Muller. Cups, plates, bedsheets, pillows, you name it, things began to come into his house. And so he rented a house in Wilson Street in Bristol. And he filled it with 30 girls who were seven and above. And then he suddenly realized this is only the tip of the iceberg. And so he then rented another house in the same street for 30 girls and boys who were below the age of seven. And then a typhus epidemic ran through Bristol, and again, many parents were wiped out, and there were still more children around. <coughs> and so he started to rent another house in Wilson Street for 40 boys who were seven plus. Could you imagine what it was like living in Wilson Street? <laughs> with 120 children running up and down the street talk about pressure here's a man who's trying to preach and pastor a growing church that alternates with Henry Craig doing pastoral surgery every Monday and then you've got over 100 young mouths to feed every day you've also got to pay the rent for three houses You've also got to pay people to look after these children and cry out for volunteers. And he did it all without asking for a penny. He writes, these dear little ones knew nothing about it because their tables are as well supplied as when there was eight in the pound in the bank and they had lack of nothing. He said, the orphans never lacked anything. Had I a thousand pounds in hand, they would have fared no better than they have. 
for they have always had good nourishing food and the necessary articles of clothing. The church that he was now pastoring with Henry Craig, which is quite interesting for people who were members of the Open Brethren being looked upon as being pastors. The church now had grown to 500 members. By 1870, they had a thousand members, plus many people who attended. And all the time that George Muller and Henry Craig were in Bethesda, Bristol, they sent out 63 people onto the mission field. Imagine a church supporting full-time 63 missions. Sadly, Bethesda was bombed in World War II. And, and the chapel no longer exists. A lady came to Bristol and went along to the Thursday one Sunday morning when Henry Craig was preaching. <coughs> this is a lady who sat under Dr. Alexander McLaren. Dr. Alexander McLaren used to pastor and preach over at Union Street in Manchester. He was an eccentric Scotsman, but a very devout man. He, he, he said... If my, people, if my people have to be in work at 6 o'clock in the morning, who am I as their pastor to be lying in until 8 o'clock until they've gone to work? He said, if they start work at 6, I start work at 6. He refused to wear slippers. If you're a minister here and you wear slippers, get them off. <laughs> he said he creates a sloppy mentality that you just slop around the house just doing a Bible study. He used to get up at 5 o'clock put a big grid overcoat on, put his boots on, and start studying to preach. And Alexander McLaren preached to over 2,000 people in Manchester three times a week. He was probably the most gifted communicator in, in the north of England at that time. This lady sat under Alexander McLaren. When she came to Bethesda and heard Henry Craig preach, she said, I've heard preaching, but now I've heard preaching. The way that this man opens scripture and communicates it is par excellence. And here's a man who hadn't been to theological college, but was a man who had come to the Lord, studied the scriptures. And by the way, throughout his life, Henry Craig turned down two doctorates. And there he was, just teaching people's children in Exeter and Tippeth. And now he's preaching to over a thousand people. Fascinating. George Muller felt that they weren't doing enough and we should start doing things for people outside of our own comfort zone. And so he started an organization called SKI, Scriptural Knowledge Institution. He had four objectives, to assist adults, day and Sunday schools where teachers were professing believers by giving them financial support. He couldn't do it these days. His idea was also to sell scripture as cheap as possible. It was 10 of those 150 years ago. <laughs> to aid missionaries. Don't forget Anthony Norris Groves, his wife's brother. Wife's uh, relative was on the mission field, living by faith. How are these people going to survive? They need money, so let's start giving money to those who are on the mission field. And also to circulate as many tracts as possible. And so here's a man in the 1830s and 1450s giving out Bibles, giving out tracts, supporting missionaries on the field, as well as being concerned for over 100 people living in Wilson Street. At the end of George Muller's life, Ski alone, not George Muller, but Ski, was supporting 500 missionaries around the world. 
had given out 2 million Bibles and 113 million tracts. He never believed that unconverted people should be given a spiritual job to win them to Christ. He said, you do not make people spiritual by giving them a spiritual job. And therefore, anybody who came to work for him had to have a clear understanding of what salvation was about. Then it happened. One day, one of the residents of Wilson Street wrote to George Muller and said, it's a little too noisy in our street. Do you mind moving? He took that as a sign to get out. But how do you move over 110 children? He got on his knees and said, Lord, they're not my children, they're yours. What do I do with them? And furthermore, your reputation isn't going down too well in Wilson Street if the neighbors are starting to write you. The day after, he opened a letter which arrived in his house. There was a check for a thousand pounds. He took that as a sign to go ahead, and so he went looking for some land to build an orphanage. He went to the top of Bristol. He found a beautiful place called Ashley Downs. He found out who owned it. The man said, yes, I'm happy to sell you 11 and a half acres, but I'll sell it to you for £220 per acre. George Muller said, that's too much. And just walked away. He got on his knees and said, Lord, give that man an uncomfortable night. <laughs> the morning after the man called George Muller and said I've been thinking <laughs> I'm happy to offer you these 11 and a half acres for £120 he'd come down £100 he said that's fine amazingly an architect down in London heard of what was going on in Bristol he came to see George Muller and said I'm happy to design all this free of charge and to supervise the building of the orphanage he worked out it was going to cost £10,000. It took three years to build, but when he finished it, he was just left with £75 out of £10,000. And when he opened, 300 children sat down for meals three times a day. That was in May 1850. By December 1850, he had a waiting list of 850 children. What do I do? He got down and said, Lord, what do I do? The day after, a check arrived in the post for £3,000. So he took this as a sign. I should go ahead with orphanage number two. By now, he reckoned, obviously, he'd learned from the first orphanage, this was going to cost £35,000. He didn't ask for a penny. Money began to come in. And when it was finished three years later, 400 girls went into that orphanage. So now he's feeding 700 mouths three times a day, as well as looking after members of staff and paying their wages. Scarlet fever hit Bristol. Very dangerous time to live in those days. Scarlet fever hit the, the city and wiped out five of his children. He felt wretched. The children in his care had died. More money kept coming in. And he took, they took this as a sign from the Lord that he should build orphanage number three. And so he built orphanage number three. And now when orphanage number three was finished, he was looking after 1,150 children. 
While number three was going up, he felt exercise for number four and number five. And eventually, he put up five orphanages. He calculated to run these five orphanages, orphanages throughout the year would, would cost £35,000. Now, raising £35,000 a day is scary. We're talking back in the 1850s and 60s and 70s. Many, many stories are told about him of, uh, of people who were given sleepless nights and turned up. Things like a baker who couldn't sleep all night and so was up baking bread and said, I don't know why, but I just feel this urge to give you all the bread I've been baking. On another occasion, a milk float broke down outside of the orphanage and, and what to do with all this milk? He may go up. And so George, George Moore took it for the children and said, thank you, Lord. And uh, one man in Bristol said, whenever I, I doubted in my faith, and sometimes we do doubt in the night, don't we? Those kind of dark moments and we, we get those kind of terrible thoughts. He said, I would go to my window and open my curtains. If the light was still on in the orphanage, I knew God was still there. God was looking after them. I could relax. George Muller was great friends with a man that you may have heard of. He's a little missionary from Yorkshire, <laughs> called Hudson Taylor. <laughs> Hudson Taylor is known as the pioneer who opened up China. Where did Hudson Taylor learn all his principles for living? He learned them from George Muller. Where did George Muller learn them from? He learned them from Anthony Norris Groves. It's surprising how George Muller is sometimes forgotten, and certainly Anthony Norris Groves totally forgotten. Everyone goes, oh, Hudson Taylor, wonderful man. He certainly was a wonderful man. But, but they had a close relationship, and Taylor learned many things from George Muller. While all this was going on, Henry Craig died. For 35 years, they'd lived together, they'd worked together, they'd prayed together, they'd cried together. He, he died. <laughs> And it was with great joy, believe me, some 15 years ago that I paid quite a bit of money, to be honest, because where Henry Craig is buried and where George Moore is buried, the cemetery is totally overgrown. But, but I remember uncovering the grave of Henry Craig and standing there thinking, here lies a man of God. And then I went back some time later and took a spade, I suppose these days I'd be arrested for doing that kind of thing, but uh, I took a spade and was digging around the cemetery, and uh, surprising what turns up, <laughs> and I uncovered the grave of Anthony Norris Groves, and I found it deeply moving, thinking it was, I probably moved over two foot of earth, I knew roughly where it was, and just was digging around, and uh, found it and thought, wow, it's probably over a hundred years since somebody has stood here. Mm -hmm. To acknowledge, here lies the grave or the body of a man who really, really served God. When the final two orphanages were opened, by the way, a Bristol glass company said, we'll give you all the glass. 700 pains. It's amazing how all this stuff kind of came in. A month after the final orphanage was opened, his wife died. He deeply loved Mary, 
and life was never the same again, but he did remarry some four years later, but it was not a good marriage. <coughs> and uh, she was 20 years younger than him. Roger knows about this. I have a list at home of people who were married to people who have a massive age gap in the Christian world. And uh, George Moore is on that list as well. His second wife was 20 years younger than him, but she was not a Mary. One day, there was a knock at one of the doors in the orphanage. George Muller opened the door, and who was on the other side? It was Charles Dickens. He said, Mr. Muller, I've heard about your work among children, but I've come to see if it's true. And George Muller said to him, you can go wherever you want and ask whatever you want. Feel free to go anywhere. And so Charles Dickens wandered around the five orphanages, just looking at what he saw. And when he came back, he admitted he was deeply impressed, deeply impressed. The man who had written Oliver Twist and, and many other things. Another man who was deeply interested in George Muller was a man called C.H. Spurgeon. And sometimes George Muller would go down to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and preach for Mr. Spurgeon. And when D.L. Moody came to this country, he had three people on his list that he wanted to see. One was Mr. Spurgeon, and another was George Muller. So famous was George Muller in the end that one child was heard to pray in, uh, in, 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 in the Sunday school class at Bethesda in Bristol. And Father, we ask all this in the precious name of George Muller. <laughs> Well, at the age of 70, he said he felt fitter than when he was 30. So some of us live in home, don't we? <laughs> and uh, with, with a new wife and a bit of zip in his walk, he thought it was time to leave the orphanage in the hands of his daughter and his son-in-law, James Wright, who was his right-hand man, and, and to go on some world tours. He went on 15 world tours <clears throat> from the age of 70 to 93. I'm going to rattle through these. His first UK tour, 770 speaking engagements. His second UK tour, 40 speaking engagements in Glasgow and 50 in Liverpool. His third tour, a European tour, 300 engagements. His fourth tour was to America, 300 engagements, and he met the US president. The fifth tour, Europe, where he happened to bump into Mr. Spurgeon, fancy meeting you here. He then went back to America and had 300 engagements there. He then went to America for his seventh tour. He then thought he should go to Egypt and Palestine and Turkey and Greece, and so he went on his eighth tour. His ninth tour was around Europe and to Poland and to Russia. He then went to India and traveled 20,000 miles. And then he did three more tours in the UK. His 14th tour was to Australia, Java, Hong Kong, China, where he bumped into Hudson Taylor. What are you doing here, Hudson? His final tour was back to America via Australia and Tasmania, preaching 86 times in Sydney. Those of you who are over 70, can I ask what have you done with your time since you've retired? I know what it is. Monday, old, oldie. Tuesday, little. Wednesday, Marks and Spencer. Here's a man of 70, still growing strong for the Lord Jesus. When he was in India, he thought he was going to die. Do you blame him? But while he was there, he heard news of his daughter had died. She was just 58 years of age. And then his second wife died. 
after 23 years of marriage and she was only 69. George Muller died of a heart attack. He every morning had a glass of warm milk brought to him, which at 93 is his privilege, and a biscuit. And he'd had his milk and biscuit in bed and then was getting out to go and wash in the sink and he collapsed on the floor of a heart attack and he died. A hundred carriages attended the funeral and 7,000 people stood around his grave when he was buried. The whole of Bristol came to a standstill. And when he died, he just left behind 165 pounds, nine shillings and fourpence. And a hundred pounds of that was in his books and in his furniture. So a man who saw 1.5 million pass through his hands was left with 69 pounds. He carried out the largest <coughs> social ministry in the world at that time. And anyone who left his orphanage left with a trade. They were fully clothed. And it wasn't kind of any, you know, these are clothes for the missionaries. They all had a uniform. So that had to be paid for. And anyone who left, boys left at 15, girls at 16, they were given a full set of clothes, money in their pocket, left with a trade and with a Bible in their hand, and he prayed for them. Now, he had some strange ways, and I'll start to wrap it up. Every day he would get out of bed and plunge his head into a cold bucket of water. <laughs> Don't laugh, he lived till he was 93. <laughs> if you've seen a photograph of George Miller, you'll understand why his hair looks as it does. It's the cold water. On his birthday, he gave all the children a day off. But when it was their birthday... He gave that child two eggs. He said, one is for you and one is for a friend. You can have a boiled egg together. He never took out fire insurance for the five orphanages. <coughs> he said, if God has put these up, then I have to trust him for keeping them up. And so he never paid out insurance. He never asked for a penny. But I have to be honest, he did have a mailing list of 25,000 people. You think of the cost of sending out 25,000 letters today. And so while he never asked for money, he did say, we're thinking about this and we just lay it before the people. He worked with a whole variety of denominations, but he insisted that everyone who worked for him was clear about the person of Christ and the work of salvation. He said, we may differ on our views on the second coming, we may differ on our views on baptism, but we do not differ in our understanding of the Lord Jesus and of what salvation is, is all about. And just for your interest, before he became a Christian, he used to read lots of novels, go to the theatre, play billiards, attend the ballroom, he said, I love a dance. But when he became a Christian, he felt he should give all that up. He called himself a happy aesthetic. One day he received a letter from a man called Henry Moorhouse. If you come to Inskip Baptist Chapel, you will find Henry Moorhouse's grave on the way into the chapel. We know Henry quite well. Henry Moorhouse was the most fascinating character. Anyway, he wrote to George Muller. And George Muller said, Henry, as long as you have breath in your body, I will give you tracts for you to hand out. 
and we have this great picture of Henry Moorhouse walking up and down the promenade at Blackpool handing out tracts that had been bought by George Muller. James McQuilkin was an Irishman who picked up one of George Muller's books. He began to read it and felt exercised about the poverty in Northern Ireland. He passed the book around to his friends. He said, if God can do that in Ireland, why can't in, in, in England, why can't he do it here? And these men met in a place called Connor, just outside Ballymena, to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And how interesting, when the 1859 revival came to Northern Ireland, where did it come to? Connor. To this very group of men who prayed. He argued that everyone could do what he did. And if he was here, I'd say, George, I have great respect for you, but I disagree with you. He said he had not got the gift of faith. He said, but what I have got is the grace of faith. And to be quite frank, I have a clue what he's talking about. <laughs> it would seem to me that he was God's man at God's time to do an incredible work. And what I find interesting is this, while he quote-unquote lived by faith, he never expected his staff to live by faith. He always promised them a salary which I find very interesting because sometimes the road God takes us down is not the road that we should drag everyone else down. He admitted not all his prayers were answered. But to be honest, I would settle at 30,000 myself. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you two things and I've finished. When I went to see his grave, I, uh, I couldn't find it. But it just so happened there was a group of people there, friends of the cemetery. So I went up to them and I said, uh, when you can help me out, please? I said, I'm looking for the grave of a man called George Muller. Never heard of him, I said. But we do know where the grave is of Mr. Wills, the, uh, the cigarette tycoon. No, I'm not interested in cigarettes, I said. I I'm interested in George Muller. I'm pleased to announce that since those days they know where George Muller is buried and they have him as part of their trail. And finally, I knew a lady. I attended her funeral in Bristol. Her parents, she was an elderly lady, her parents met round the Lord's table with George Muller. After I spoke to this elderly lady, her daughter said to me, my mother has a letter from George Muller. We don't want it. Would you like it? <laughs> I said in a nonchalant way, if you want. <laughs> and so she went to her elderly mother and said, mother, where's that letter that... Uh, that your parents had from George Muller. Oh, she said, I threw it away. We don't want that kind of stuff hanging around the house. So there we are. Maybe it's a good job I didn't get it. Otherwise it would become an evangelical relic. You'd all be coming here wanting to see it and touch it. What an amazing man. 
He's one of ours. <laughs> one day we're going to see George. He wasn't a perfect man, but it shows me what God can do with, with a diamond in the rough. Let's just pray.